Oh, good morning. Um, I am, um, it's really good to be here, and I'm just really excited that I get to wear the Beyonce mic. I've never, ever had it before, so I just need to indulge this teenage fantasy for a moment. And so I normally um, go to the evening service, but um, sometimes I come along here, and it's always really good to be with you. So thank you for having me. Um, this morning, um, I am going to be continuing on with our uh, sermon series, The Risen King. And I have the pleasure this morning of taking us to the Garden of Gethsemane, um, to the prayer of the king. Gethsemane literally means the oil press, um, which suggests um, a level of intensity. And um, that is what it is. Uh, there's no beating around the bush. That is where we are headed this morning. Um, it is a moment where we see Jesus pray before his Father in heaven and he cries out to God in, in agony and it seems that heaven is silent. Uh, and as I have been preparing for this talk and wrestling with this subject, confronted with my own unanswered prayers, not just for myself but for those I've prayed for others, it's just a really tough, heavy subject and I can't possibly do it justice in half an hour all I can do is draw from my own experience um, and trust what uh, God has put on my heart for us this morning. Um, so I'd just like to open us in prayer and ask the Holy Spirit to help me um, as I bring this word to you this morning. Jesus, I thank you so much that you promise to always be with us. I thank you that you're here in this place that we can know you in our questioning, we can know you in our suffering and in our grief. You are indeed close to our broken hearts. And so I just pray this morning that as we explore this story of encounter, that you would encounter us, that we would know something of your heart and your goodness and ultimately your, store, your uh, plan to restore us um, and bring us into relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so to begin this morning, I would like to start with the subject of rewilding. Rewilding is uh, one of the many rabbit holes that I go down, <laughs> and so I'm delighted that I've been able to weave it into my talk this morning. Um, so, if any of you are not familiar with this uh, concept, rewilding is a progressive approach to conservation. It's about letting nature take care of itself, enabling the natural process to shape land and sea, repair damaged ecosystems, and restore degraded landscapes. Through rewilding, re wildlife's natural rhythms create wilder, more diverse habitats. So wilding, rewilding, sorry, is the response conservationists have made to the damage that we, humankind, have made on the environment, largely since the agricultural revolution, where our consumption for our like consumption for like pretty much everything has caused habitats of rare species to disappear and made others increasingly vulnerable. And the most famous example of this is in Yellowstone Park back in the 1920s. So I just want to read you um, an account of what happened when they began to rewild Yellowstone. It all starts with the walls. 
Wolves disappeared from Yellowstone, the world's first national park in the 1920s. When they left, the entire ecosystem changed. Elk herds in the park increased their number and began to make quite a meal of the aspens, willows and cottonwoods that lined the streams. Vegetation declined and animals that depended on the trees left. The wolves were absent for 70 years. When they returned, the elk's languorous browsing days were over as the wolf packs kept the herds on the move, browsing diminished and the trees sprang back. The roots of cottonwoods and willows once again stabilized stream banks and slowed the flow of water. This in turn created space for animals such as beavers to return. These industrious builders could now find the material they needed to construct their lodges and raise their families. The animals that depended on the riparian meadows came back as well. The wolves turned out to be better stewards of the land than the people, creating conditions that allowed the trees to grow and exert their influence on the landscape. Now, I can appreciate that maybe you're all sitting here thinking, this is a great story, but what the heck has it got to do with Jesus in Gethsemane and the subject of answered prayer, unanswered prayer? And I want to suggest that actually it has really rather quite a lot to do with it. Because in rewilding, we see a picture of restoration. And I believe that the prayer of Jesus in Gethsemane like 100% is wrapped up and caught up and points to God's story of restoration for us. This is where our identity in God is restored and recovered and in return, his as well. In this restoration process, we find the freedom to relinquish control and trust more deeply in the will of our Father. I find this quote from Isabella Tree, who went on a long and courageous journey of rewilding her country estate in Sussex, intriguing and revealing. She says, rewilding is largely a leap of faith. It involves surrendering all preconceptions and simply sitting back and observing what happens. And as I have thought about this in relation to today's passage, I have been struck by that word surrendering how that's exactly what Jesus does as he prays in the garden. So with all that in mind, let's read the text for today. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be deeply distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And on first encounter with this prayer, we see that it mirrors the prayer that Jesus teaches his disciples to pray earlier on in the Gospels, the prayer we all know as the Lord's Prayer. I find it striking that in one of the most intense moments of his life, Jesus uses the very same prayer work that he taught his disciples as he prays. 
This is something that we shouldn't overlook as it reveals depth and character to the shape of Jesus' prayer life that we are to imitate as his followers. It shows us that the Lord's Prayer is not just the framework that he taught his disciples um, to pray, but it is foundational to his own intimacy with the Father. And in teaching us this precious prayer, Jesus is paving the way to restored relationship with the Father that we were always meant to have. So the prayer of the king is intimate relationship. In Gethsemane, by beginning his prayer with Abba, Jesus is giving us insight into the depth of his affections and his intimacy with the Father. Abba is an Aramaic name for father, and it is literally translated daddy or dada. And according to studies, usually the first word that um, small children and babies say is, in fact, daddy or dada. And so for a Jewish baby speaking Aramaic in first century Palestine, um, their first word most probably would have been Abba. And to address God in this way would have been revolutionary to the disciples. In their ancient Jewish culture, the God of heaven was known as Elohim, which means strong and mighty, or Yahweh, which was the more personal covenant name for God. So to address the transcendent, infinite God of their ancestors as father would have totally thrown their previous understanding of relating to God. Now, Isaac Wade gave me absolute illustration gold last week when during Joel's preach, Isaac, totally um, not bothered by all the other people in the room, just shouted out, Daddy! (laughs) And Joel responded to the greeting with affection. He didn't ignore his son or correct him for disrupting the moment. He simply just responded with affection. And it was very cute and very funny. And what I was struck by was just Isaac's total abandon to what, he was go- uh, what was going on around him in that moment. He was completely free to know his father, and his father, in turn, to know him. Relationship is utterly foundational to prayer. It's about knowing and being known. Andrew Murray, a 19th century South African writer, says... The power of prayer depends almost entirely upon our apprehension of who it is with whom we speak. So when we are scared and hurting, when life feels chaotic and out of control, it's more important than ever to anchor ourselves in the absolute and eternal truth that we are dearly loved and deeply held by the most powerful being in the universe. Let this be the great non-negotiable in our lives, the platform for all other thoughts and the plumb line for our prayers. Jesus' intimacy was so deep, so at one with God the Father, that in the sorrow and the agony of this moment, his most natural and immediate response was to cry out to his Abba. Now before we move on, I think it's important to acknowledge that for some of us, the concept of God as Father is a difficult one, because we don't always have positive experiences of our Father's. Maybe the father figure in your life has been abusive or emotionally absent. Maybe they abandoned you. or Maybe your father has died. And so the thought of the father figure is associated with deep pain and loss. And even when our experience of our earthly fires is good, 
we still carry disappointment and hurt and the realization that they are broken and flawed. But there is something deeply restorative about the relationship between God, the Father, and Jesus that is made available to you and I through Jesus' prayer in Gethsemane. Because in crying out to his Abba in that moment, Jesus reveals a much deeper intimacy and trust that exceeds even our best experiences of human relationship. It's a union and a oneness at its most authentic And it echoes the union and oneness we see in a different garden in scripture, the Garden of Eden. And we learn from the book of Genesis that God planted a garden in the east called Eden and he gave it to the man and the woman to dwell in and to have responsibility over the created world. And we're also told at the end of chapter two that the man shall leave his wife, sorry, the man shall leave his father, not his wife, The man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and unashamed. Now this is significant for two reasons. Firstly, the Hebrew word used for one is the same word used to describe the triune God in the book of Deuteronomy. It's the word ishad. And it implies that humans are to partake in the same Trinitarian relationship of mutual surrender and dependency. Secondly, the man and the woman were both naked and not ashamed. Meaning at this point in the story, the unity that they shared with each other and that they shared with God was shared in nakedness and intimacy without shame and without fear. However, we know that this is not how the story ends in Eden because in planting us into his perfect picture of unity, God gave us the power to choose voluntary submission in relationship to him or to listen to the serpent who represents the devil in this story. And the serpent, when tempting the woman to eat the fruit from the tree of knowledge of good and evil, he says to her, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And devastatingly, in this moment of doubting the truthfulness of God's word, his identity is brought into question, and subsequently that of the man and the woman. The unity, intimacy, and mutual trust that they shared up until this point is severed by the fear of an alternative reality where God would withhold truth and freedom and power from the man and woman. And the consequence of this choice is that fear and shame entered into that relationship. And the man and woman, newly aware of their nakedness and vulnerability, hid from God. Pete Gregg summarizes this story like this. Adam and Eve, who have been created by God's love and by his word, inevitably divorce themselves from their only source of identity and being. But the good news for you and I is that this story doesn't have to end this way because back in the garden of Gethsemane, we see a different choice being made. So let's go back to Gethsemane. And Jesus prays, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So the prayer of the king enters into our suffering and walks with us through the valley of the shadow of death. 
So having established the intimacy of the loving relationship between father and child, Jesus reinforces the order of his attention and adoration, mirroring once more the Lord's Prayer, where the next part goes, you are God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus says, all things are possible for you. An American author and preacher, Tim Keller, says beginning this prayer with adoration and or it, sorry, beginning prayer with adoration reorients your heart and your desire towards God and to your deepest need, which ultimately is your identity as a child of God, where you are deeply loved and deeply known. And the more time you spend adoring and praising God, the more it becomes real to your heart. That's why when we start our gatherings, we start with the Bible, we start with scripture, we start with worship. Jesus' intimacy with the Father is so rooted in relationship and adoration. His heart is so totally oriented to the Father's will that in his weakness and his suffering, he can still declare with confidence in an all-powerful God who is able to turn his situation around. All things are possible for you. And in the shadow of his adoration, Jesus begins... Jesus brings his petition before the Father. Remove this cup from me. In his humanity and weakness, heavy with the burden of what is to come, asking God to remove the cup of suffering. And as much as my heart is heavy when I read this, it also gives me hope. Because through his honest petition... Jesus demonstrates ultimate vulnerability and nakedness before God. He's wrestling with the weight of what's to come. So much so that we're told in Luke's gospel that his sweat became drops of blood. But it gives me hope because Jesus held nothing back in this moment. Utterly naked and vulnerable. It gives us permission to be free, to lament to request a desire for an alternative outcome. It gives us permission to not be okay with suffering. And because Jesus went there, we can know him in our pain and our suffering. Here we discover our great high priest who can sympathize with our weakness because he faced the same testing that we do. I find the metaphor as Jesus as my shepherd in the valley of the shadow comes most alive when I think about this moment. His presence reminds me that the shadows are not as big as the light they are blocking. No shepherd would lead their flock down a path that they have not already gone before. And here is Jesus courageously walking into the shadow of unanswered prayer, betrayal, abandonment, and ultimately death for you and I. And so when bearing your cross feels like the weight of the world, we can know Jesus, who really did have the weight of the world on his shoulders, took the cup of suffering and surrendered to the will of his Father. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Yet not what I will, but what you will. The prayer of the king is surrendered. As I have been preparing for this talk, 
I have been struck by that part of the prayer in Gethsemane and how it mirrors the part of the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done. And I realize that I pray this part of the prayer in quite a romantic way of like heaven coming to earth and the kingdom breaking through. And if I'm honest, I don't think I've ever really prayed it where it requires any real personal sacrifice or surrender to the will of God. And in light of this moment, it's actually probably the hardest part of the prayer to pray because it requires so much trust and a willingness to die to self, to accept that the Father's will is greater than my own, whether I like it or not, and whether I understand it or not. This is the part where we really count the cost of discipleship to Jesus, especially in the face of unanswered prayer. And it reminds me of three men in the Old Testament in the book of Daniel called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And the faith and devotion of these three men was put to the ultimate test when they refused to bow down to King Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. And as they stood on the edge of the fiery furnace, they declared with absolute certainty that God would deliver them. But even if he didn't, they would still not bow down to the golden image. Pete Gregg observes that this declaration of faith encapsulates the paradox of faith where in one breath you declare with certainty God will deliver you, but in another you suggest that he possibly won't. It's the kind of faith that believes for a miracle but refuses to be shaken by unanswered prayer. It's deeply challenging. And it's the same paradox that we see in the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. <clears throat> now I expect here in London that many of us don't find our faith challenged quite like this. But our devotion to Jesus can be challenged in other ways. And when the prayers for these challenges to be removed goes unanswered, it can be devastating. Many of us who profess to be followers of Jesus would be familiar with this saying in John 16, where Jesus tells his followers, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Now if you're anything like me, you probably find this saying easier to know intellectually than to live out and experience. And as I have examined my heart, in light of faith like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, I realize that it's not just my faith, but my whole identity that can be shaken by unanswered prayer. And I've had to go on a painful journey of deconstruction and wrestle with my theology in the face of it. Honestly, I've lived a large chunk of my discipleship to Jesus under the theoretical triumph of the second part of this statement and not in humble, humble acceptance of the former. When I've most felt the cost of discipleship and taken a long, hard look at my foundations, I've come to realize more often than I would like to admit that I'm a consumer Christian 
where my trust and security is rooted in my strength and my capabilities and not as a disciple abiding with my beloved and with my Father in heaven. I find this quote by American author and pastor Guy Dathani in his book, The Divine Commodity, sums up the state of my heart pretty well. My secret is that I want to be relevant and popular. I want my desires fulfilled and pain minimized. I want manageable relationship with an institution rather than messy relationships with real people. I want to be transformed into an image of Christ by showing up at entertaining events rather than through the hard work of discipline. I want to wear my faith on my sleeve and not look at the darkness in my heart. And above all, I want a controllable God. I want a divine commodity to do my will on earth as in heaven. This was and is sometimes still me showing up and performing through learned behavior of consumption, praying desperately when things are going wrong, when I need that job or I want that relationship to work out and forgetting God when the sun is shining and everything is working according to my will. And as I've had to work through this painful season of deconstruction, I found I've had to return to the garden to rediscover Jesus for who he really is, to know unity and relationship with him in a much more honest way. And much like the wolves returning to Yellowstone at the beginning of my talk, I've had to make the journey back to the restoration of my relationship, to be re-rooted in the love of my father and my identity in him. I've not reached the place where I can honestly say I'm completely surrendered to the will of God. But through this process of returning and abiding, of attention and adoring, I have a bigger view of God and a smaller view of my fear. And it gives me the courage to edge slowly away from my will and deeper into his. Finally, the prayer of the king works in all things. I'd like us to think about the space in between in the silence of unanswered prayer. There's an event just before the prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane, which I believe is significant in how we engage in the silence rather than just becoming disillusioned and despondent. In Matthew and Mark's gospel accounts of this story, We learn that um, Jesus and his disciples, before they entered the Garden of Gethsemane, sang a hymn. And as we have learned already through this sermon series, this was the time of Passover for the Jewish people, where they would remember the story of the Exodus and how God heard the cries of his people and rescued them from slavery. And part of the tradition of Passover would be to sing or recite the great halal, which is Psalms 113 to 18. These are songs of praise in remembrance to God's goodness to his people. Another tradition among Jewish communities is to read from the, song, the, the book of the Songs of Songs, which may come as a surprise to most of you, because if you know anything about the Song of Songs, it's an erotic Hebrew love poem 
Many scholars take the Song of Songs at face value and believe it is purely a celebration of love and sexual union between a man and wife. However, many others believe that it is an allegorical poem about a God passionately pursuing his people. And in my opinion, it's both. And if we look at it in the context of this story, you'll see why. Now, it is most likely that the hymn that Jesus and his disciples sang before they entered the garden was the great halal, which is Psalms 113 to 18. But I wonder, in the power of remembering and praising God for his mercy, it was cementing the Father's love and his delight for his beloved son as Jesus entered the garden. Personally, I find it quite helpful to meditate on some of the chapters of Song of Songs sometimes. It helps to restore my true identity as the beloved of God, especially when I'm tempted to question it, especially in the face of unanswered prayer. I need to remember God. I need to root myself in the truth that I am my beloved's and his delight is for me. So the other day, I set aside some time to meditate on these words from Song of Songs. This is from Song of Songs, chapter two. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone. The flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing has come. The voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, my beautiful one, and come away. And so I was trying to meditate on this passage, and in all honesty, I was quite distracted, and I was just staring out the window. But then my eyes just fell on my Bible, my open Bible on the table in front of me. And I noticed how my Bible was kind of open right smack bang in the middle. And the thought just occurred to me that right at the story, like right at the center of the story of the Bible is a passionate love poem. Or in other words, right at the heart of God's story of redemption for like the whole world is a passionate God who pursues his people. And I think it's worth noting that both of these traditions, reading the songs of praise from the great Halal and reading from the Song of Songs, would have also been and still are practiced on the great Sabbath Saturday of the Passover weekend. And for followers of Jesus, I believe this carries enormous significance. Because the, in these two practices, we have the power of remembrance of like God's redeeming, rescuing work of the people of Israel, but we also have the power of knowing our identity in God. As we wait and we wrestle in the silence, we can know the safety of his love, to be known as his beloved, and to be honest and unafraid in our sadness and in our unanswered prayer. Now I've had quite a hard time preparing this talk. Um, I think uh, engaging unanswered prayer can be quite triggering and quite difficult. 
And honestly, I've been to some quite dark places over the last couple of weeks. And a couple of, and I was just really wrestling with it. And stuff just kept coming up, like real life stuff, emails, phone calls, messages, that were just reminding me of how like, there are so many prayers I'm still waiting for God to answer. And I just wasn't sure if I really had the faith to be able to give a talk like this. And in my desperation, I just cried out to God. And I was just like, I need you to show me where you are. And I was reminded of the story in Mark 7, where a Gentile woman's daughter has an unclean spirit. And this Gentile woman's going after Jesus. And she's asking and asking Jesus to heal her daughter. And in the end, Jesus just turns around to her and says... Let the children be filled first, for it's not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the little dogs. Now, according to Jewish law, Gentiles were seen as unclean, and as an insult, the Jewish people would call Gentiles dogs. So in saying this, Jesus was basically saying that the woman is a dog, and she can't partake of the bread of the Jews. However, what the woman says in response is amazing. Because she says, yes, Lord, yet even the little dogs under the table eat from the children's crumbs. So what's really happening here is that by assuming at the appearance of traditional Jewish prejudice, Jesus is actually provoking the most remarkable confession of faith. This Gentile woman saw beyond what Jesus was saying in this moment. And the story concludes, Jesus commends her for her faith and he heals her daughter And as I've thought about this story in in light of unanswered prayer, I felt like the invitation from God was to notice the crumbs, to be provoked to faith once more, to see what is happening beyond the surface, to be faithful with what is in my hands and to keep bringing to God what's in my heart. And as I've been looking for the crumbs, I can see that God is at work in me and my life all the time. And it's not in the big moments of expectation and breakthrough, but rather the gentle promptings and reminders that I am deeply loved and deeply known. It's often unexpected and clunky. And as I return to the life of Jesus, I see that he heals a man by spitting in his eye and forgives a woman by drawing in the sand. He provokes faith by calling a woman a dog And he rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then we know he dies a shameful death on a cross so that you and I can walk free. I think this quote by Pete Gregg sums this up really well. There is a divine alchemy at work in all faithful suffering. We look back and realize that it was actually our disappointments and not our plaudits that the Lord had transformed to gold. We know what we once doubted, that in all things, even in unanswered prayer, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Do the band want to come back up? So I'd like to close with this picture that I took. It's um, the wall in uh, the Hoxton Community Garden. I live in Hoxton and I use this garden often. I walk past this wall all the time. 
And the other day I noticed that someone had pasted up these words, not afraid. And we have learned through the prayer of the king that in returning to the garden, our identity is restored. We can know intimacy and unity with God as it was always meant to be, without shame and without hiding. The garden is a safe space of deep encounter where we can be completely naked before God and lay all our fear and pain and petition before him. And in the suffering of Jesus, we find the courage to surrender in total trust to the will of our Father in hope because we know that there is another garden where the dead things come back to life. Amen.